Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I'm lucky enough to visit film festivals all around the world. It's an opportunity to be exposed to so many wonderful imaginative forays into horror cinema that come from different countries, different cultures, different dark fantasies. A community of international filmmakers gather to show, to watch, and to experience the talents that often don't make their way into the American cinemas or streamers. There's so many great genre films that don't fit into the particular commercial demands of these platforms, and the world is all the poorer for it. It's great to see this broad canvas of styles and expressions of the art of terror on the big screen with an audience as the gods of film intended. Our guest is going through that experience right now. Irish writer-director Lee Cronin first drew attention with his festival favorite short film, Ghost Train. That led to his first feature film, The Hole in the Ground, which debuted at the Sundance Film Festival in 2019. You may not have seen or even heard of The Hole in the Ground, though by all means, you should seek it out now. But the good news is that Sam Raimi and his partners at Renaissance Pictures and Ghost House did, and were so impressed that they brought him on board to write and direct Evil Dead Rise. The world is rife with sequels, reboots, and reimaginings of classic horror titles, but it's always good to know when the creator of the original has a hand in them. Just as John Carpenter helped to score the last three Halloween movies, Sam Raimi, who wrote and directed the original Evil Dead films, is a producer, in fact, not just in the credits. So that's always a good place to start. We'll speak with Lee Cronin about his experience from fantasy film festivals to international studio release now. So Lee, when did it start for you? Were you a childhood horror fan? I, I was, um, Mick, yeah. I, um, there's an eight-year age gap from me to my next sibling, and then I have three siblings that, that oh, run, wow. um, you know, yeah. There's, and then the, what's the space between them? I guess there's like six, seven years between those three. So when I was, when I was eight years old, my sister was 16. Uh, and then my next brother was 17, 18, and my older brother was about 20. So they were watching horror movies, and therefore I was watching horror movies as well. It, there, oh, it was, great. So you weren't the offbeat kid. You were part of the train. Of- oh, no, no. I was not locked in a cupboard. I was, I was, <laughs> I was, I was brought in to watch um, whatever they were watching. And it, I, I, the more I think about it, I think the impact was actually the fact that, look, I was terrified. I watched, you know, before I was 10 years old, I had seen The Shining, Poltergeist. Um, I'd seen the Evil Dead movies. I'd seen, uh, I'd seen Jaws when I was really young. I'd seen A Nightmare on Elm Street. I'd seen 
things that you know somebody before their 10th birthday i'm not going to say shouldn't see because i'm okay but they were they were a joy to watch but i i spent a lot of time hiding and watching them react they were my first ever not audience because i didn't make the movies but my first understanding of how an audience can interact and behave with horror movies and i do have images etched in my mind i remember watching poltergeist specifically was it like my mother and father were out you know behave etc and they brought some friends over and we had this kind of raucous viewing of this movie but it was my observation of them having fun that i think got under my skin as much as the movies in terms of wanting to make things that uh could engage an audience so yeah it was it went back to childhood um and specifically Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, that was my dad because he was also a horror fan. So he showed me those um, again when I was about eight or nine years old. So no escape. Here we call that good parenting. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it connected with you. It, it's usually um, an outcast feeling where you accept, you um, embrace the horror because everybody else around you does not. And yeah. I find it fascinating that it goes to your parents as well as your siblings. I think that's yeah, great. yeah, it, it was a family affair. I think I was never I was never the outcast when it came to movie watching. But when I I catch up with you know other friends when when I hit my teen years or late teen years, like they have memories of we you know we come over to your house for a few beers and you'd be showing us some new Korean horror movie. So I was always then I became the kind of the sharer of the madness. I'd be like, hey, I know it's two a.m., but let's watch audition again. <laughs> so. Never, never the outcast in that respect, but definitely the uh, the purveyor. You were the curator. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's great. Well, you had a lot of success with short films in film festivals and, and really hit hard with Ghost Train. You and I met at a festival. Um, and, you know, that is such an amazing place for like minds to get together from around the world. And tell me about that experience of the first time well, you won the Melier Award for your yeah. short film with Ghost Train. And tell me about that experience of seeing something you put together yourself with your own two hands uh, on the big screen at a festival uh, where it is so well received. Yeah, look, it's it's a real joy. The best part about short films is you only have to actually squirm in your seat for 10 or 15 minutes, <laughs> which, which, which kind of helps. Um, it's, it was a beautiful journey with the shorts. It was actually before we made Ghost Train, I made a short film called Through the Night and um, had a couple of screenings in Ireland. We had like the Horathon in Ireland at Halloween. And then this cinema that unfortunately no longer exists has been bulldozed called The Screen, which in Dublin terms was the equivalent of the Arrow in LA. It, it, wow. it, it had that atmosphere or the Prince Charles in London. It kind of had, it was, it was that, that movie theater. And they put it on over Halloween weekend. Uh, they wanted to put it on before the thing, which I adore. So I was just, I bought like five different tickets for their screenings over the weekend just <laughs> to watch my short and the first 10 minutes of the thing, just to see that 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 kind of join. Wow. And and like that is, like that's all it takes. All you need is one friend to be with you at something like that. And, and you know, you feel on top of the world. And then it's a, the reason I'm bringing it up and going backwards, it's a story I got to recount um, just last week because I was in London for the UK premiere of Evil Dead Rise. And I bumped into one of the organizers of, um, of, of Fright Fest over there. And that was my first ever international screening. And it was in, uh, what was the movie? What was the theater called again? Oh my God, The Empire on Leicester Square. Oh Which, yeah. Talking about bulldozing was a 12, 1300 seater literally the nicest room I've ever been in, like whether it be cinema or otherwise, the atmosphere in that room, they've since chopped it up, I think, and made it into two screens. But this was back in like 2010. 
And I was over the moon. I was like, oh, my God, my like my short film is playing on Leicester Square. It just felt like <laughs> the biggest deal in the world. And Paul McAvoy was the, the guy from Fright Fest. And we arrived. And I, I said I saw him the other night at a screening and I told him this story. We arrived myself, my producer, John Kevill. And he spotted us. He goes, oh, my God, guys, I'm so glad to see you. Your film is the only film. And my brain was slowing down in time. I, th- I thought he was going to say that Steven Spielberg has asked to like, you know, remake. I, just, I, was, I was on a high already. It's like, your film is the only film where the, D- the DCP has failed and it won't play. Oh, no. And we've just, we're just off the plane and we're like, what the fuck? He's like, do you have a backup DVD that you could use? And I was going, and I, like I zero ego, but I was like, I'm not putting this short film on the Empire, like the Empire screen on, on a DVD. So it was, a, it, this was Saturday evening at about seven o'clock. So we had to ring our colorist in Dublin who had basically worked on the movie for free, but joyously I was able to bring him and his company and his team back on Evil Dead Rise. So what goes around comes around. Oh, great. I had, had to call him and go, can you resend us the DCP? So we found a Virgin Megastore back when they were open. We got a, we got a USB key and we found like a dodgy internet cafe on Charing Cross Road. And we sat there at 1 a.m., slowly downloading this DCP <laughs> tick, on, tick, tick. onto this USB key. And then didn't sleep a wink and had to be back at the cinema at eight, just lying in bed, vibrating, oh, please work, please work. And went back to the cinema at 8 a.m. the next morning um, with the DCP, with the USB key, and watched it upload to 99% and then hesitate for 10 seconds and complete. All, <laughs> oh, God. All, all to say it is a massive joy to share your short films or anything you do with an audience. It's a massive joy to share whatever you have with an audience if they come along and see it. But the short film world, it's it's fraught in terms of these these kind of moments. And that wasn't different colors, different temperatures, but that wasn't the first moment I had selling, I said, selling my wares on the journey uh, where, yeah, your heart was in your mouth. Yeah, there's there's something special about Ireland and ghost stories and stories of tales of terror and the like, and a real resurgence recently. I mean, you've got the Devil's Doorway, You Are Not My Mother, The Harrow, Boys of County Hell hole in the ground what do you think it is about the irish tradition and history and uh, and stories of fear and terror deep-rooted repression i guess <laughs> we, we, you know yeah we trade on it um i mean bram stoker was from yeah Dublin, yeah so. yeah of course like look there's we're, we are we are a nation of storytellers whether it be verbally or written down um i think in terms of why we're seeing more horror movies and and more genre work out of Ireland, it's probably slightly a generational thing, you know? Like I remember trying to get my movies off the ground and in Ireland, we have amazing support from Screen Ireland. Like we have a, a, you know, a national funder that, that, that helps develop talent. And, but finding your feet in that world was, was challenging. And I remember having many notes being like, stop writing Americana. And my response was always, I grew up watching American movies and mm-hmm. TV. This is my voice. I can't change it. It's nothing to do with where I'm from. And I think that's probably something that has now happened is that I think there's Irish filmmaking voices that have international perspective in, ter- in terms of the things that they that they watched and they enjoyed. And then obviously, you know, going deeper, there's been we did an incredible award season this year with Irish talent and Irish movies. And it, it, it kind of goes back to investment in a lot of ways, like investing in talent over time. And then specifically an understanding of the power of genre cinema within that. Because when you're using public money, I get it. At the beginning, it's like we need to tell a local story or a worthy story or 
something that um that has a particular set of meanings or parameters but now the genre filmmakers have started to show that that investment can be used to actually showcase um dark irish stories abroad and internationally and you know in, in a variety of different ways so i think it's a combination of the storytelling history but also um but also an, an of the moment um rise from the inspiration of the things that we probably all watched when we were younger yeah, think, yeah. You, know, you know what i mean that's like you know i i you know i rented your movies on vhs my local video store you know <laughs> that's that's and, I, and then i ended up working there and i and, and there's there's people like me in ireland that have a that intimate relationship with with what cinema is especially from a genre perspective well there there is truly a a, a grand tradition of irish ghost stories too that it's a real important part of the literary and cinematic culture. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's not an Irish person you will meet that doesn't have three ghost stories in their back pocket. Um, I was, it's it's always funny, my family, we've, we've the three or four family ghost stories. And um, my my siblings were at the European premiere, which we had in Dublin a couple, last week, two weeks ago. We had the European premiere, the movie in Dublin. And then I went and met with them the next day because we didn't really get to hang out that night. I went back to my hometown and we hung out and, you know, had a couple of beers and they were so their horror history sharing with me. But they were on such a high from seeing the movie that we just spent the day telling ghost stories, sitting mm-hmm. in the sitting in the pub, having a couple of beers, just telling ghost stories for two or three hours. And it is it is actually part of the culture. Um, and they still scare me. And every time you sit down with my family and tell a ghost story, there's a new detail. I don't know if someone's twisting the truth, but there's always something I'm like, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had a few. Like we had one particular family holiday many years ago where members of my family all had supernatural experiences in different ways. Um, and yeah, there's not a local town in Ireland that doesn't have its its blue lady or its banshee or its headless horseman up the road. Well, I'd love to hear one of yours. Oh, good. Would you, would you want me to? Do you want, well, I'll get yeah. I'll give you the I'll give you quite an abridged version, um, Mick. So it was nineteen. There's a start to a story. It was nineteen ninety one, <laughs> and um, myself and my my family, which was my my mother, my father, my three siblings, and my eldest brother's girlfriend, um, went to a rented holiday home um, in Kerry in Ireland, which is kind of da- down southwest, basically, pretty pretty deep in the countryside. And there was there was some buildup in relation to my, my mother at the time worked voluntarily for an organization for people with disabilities. And she was on the board of management and they just hired a new day to day manager for that organization who was from that part of the world. And he didn't say anything at the time, but she told him where he was going, where she was going, what specific town and the name of the family she was renting the place from. And it was only in hindsight that she kind of remembered he had a weird he had just a slightly weird reaction about it. And when we got there, um, it was truly, it was super, super rural. Um, like we were all packed into, what was my dad driving? A Mazda 626. And we were dra- the exhaust pipe was dragging off the rocky hill <laughs> as we were trying to get up to this house, which was half modern, like a cottage, kind of half modern, and and but had been built onto something older. And literally at the horror cliche, if there was one kind of shed part outside that was locked and you couldn't get into with like this opaque glass. But essentially, I think we were away for a week or maybe 10 days. And towards the end of the trip, there was a knock on my door one night. And my sister, who was sharing a bedroom and a bed with my brother's girlfriend, uh, you know, pulled my my big brother out of the room. And there was chit chat and stuff going on. 
And I was, again, I was like this nine-year-old kind of eager, like what's happening? And I was told, oh, there's a spider's nest and I hate spiders. So I just, I just, at that point, I was like, I'm not interested in what's going on. But as it had turned out, my sister had woken up and had a glance, um, you know, towards the door in her room and saw a dark figure standing there. And she, <laughs> her first instinct was, it was my brother coming to wake up his girlfriend, you know, to go like, 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 let's go into the sitting room and make out kind of situation. So <laughs> she tried to doze off, but then she just woke up again and felt that there was something there. And then she felt this thing sit on the bed by her feet. So she freaked out. And she's also not a believer at all. She freaked out. And so began the wake up situation. Then she in turn, uh, the next morning. So my, my myself, and my brothers had this room with bunk beds in it. So the, the girls came in and kind of joined us. And then the next day, my, sister went to my mother at, at breakfast and was like hey mom I need to tell you about something weird that happened last night and just that utterance my mother kind of paled and then she started to share and my dad started to share their experience so my mother would always have been the person that would go to bed last or at least if everybody went to bed she'd get up and make sure the doors are closed the lights are off the cooker is off that was kind of her her routine and she kept getting woken up by lights being back on in this house and kept getting woken up at the same time and noticing the door to her bedroom just clicking shut as if I'd come in to have a look around and close the door. <laughs> and then my, So this kind of went on. And for her, it got kind of more intense as the nights went on. And then my dad uh, heard what he claimed to be country voices coming from the corner of the room saying, be on your way now, which again, just sounds like movie cliche, right? It's, it's, all, it's almost too perfect. I didn't know any of this till you, like three or four years later when the story started to come out oh, my brother the other day reminded me that from our bedroom we did hear footsteps on the corridor but again the, thing, the only thing that freaks me out is i remember like you know you'd buy some like crappy little toy in the local shop and i'd be playing on that corridor while my family were in like watching a movie or playing cards or whatever you know like summer holiday hangout but what happened when my mother came back and and spoke to this this manager that was that the board of management had hired he then started to share. So the house in question um, had recently been renovated. The guy who renovated it with his wife had been having an affair with his sister-in-law and, and had committed suicide. Oh, this is too perfect. I know. It's like it's it's it like it hits all the buttons. And like whether or not that had any impact, on, I, like, look, I don't know. But the bit that I love, I always love a sequel, right? And, <laughs> and, and the bit that I love is, 20 plus years later my brother's a marine engineer and uh and works on like offshore wind farms and that kind of thing and he lives in not nowhere near where we went on holidays but he lives in just that swathe of the country he's still like an hour and a half two hours from where we were and he had a client who was house hunting looking for a country home and he had a coffee with him and was just like hey how's the country house situation going and he's like He's like, good, good. He goes, I must say, he goes, I had a really weird experience the other day and started to describe this house randomly. And as they started to chit chat their way deeper into it, discovered it was exactly the same house that this we is, stayed in. Same, same, so same Rocky Hill, same everything. It was me and my wife went in and we felt terrible and we felt cold. And the estate agent wasn't even there. They'd been given the keys to go and check it out themselves by like the realtor. Um, and they said they just felt dread and terror and just left after like two minutes. And my brother was like, where was it? And he was like a town called Phoenix. And he's like, oh, no way. I was in holidays in Phoenix before. My brother wasn't even jumping to. I stayed in a scary house in Phoenix. 
they just they walked their way into it and they realized it was you know it was exactly the same place so that's, that's <laughs> probably my that's probably my number one family ghost story i love it that is so great hopefully we'll see that transferred to the screen one of these days it's 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 in progress in certain ways it has inspirations on things i'm working on that's excellent so in terms of going from short films to finally getting an opportunity to do your first feature film how did that come together slowly mick yeah it was um it took me three or four years i was working i was directing tv commercials uh mm. towards the tail end of as i call my short film career um i was directing tv commercials which were ne necessary to you know keep the lights on i didn't love it as an industry um but it you know it allowed me to stay afloat and it did allow me to learn things on other people's dime. Um, but the issue was that I had this feature film idea, the hole in the ground, like gestating for many years. But every time I'd get a bit of rhythm with the writing, I'd get sucked onto an ad job for six or eight weeks and completely kill the momentum. And as we all know, when you write, you, you really do need like a, you need a clean agenda to actually push forward and, and, and do what you need to do. Um, so I just kept stalling and stalling and stalling. And then eventually I finished a draft and everybody hated it. And it was because it was, it was way too ambitious for a low budget horror. It was like, you know, some people may have seen the hole in the ground. It's quite a simple story. The original draft had like three different timelines and like 25 characters. And it was just oh. all over the map. And I was trying to uncover a mythos, I suppose, and, and an idea. So then I, 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 I just wrote like, I don't even want to call it a treatment or an outline. I just wrote like this one page mission statement for what, what are you trying to, to do here, Lee? Like, what is it you're trying to figure out? And that led me in a pathway to then actually getting the screenplay written. And luckily my producer that I'd worked with John Kevill for, for many years on shorts had obviously gone on and had the opportunity to produce feature films while I was busy screwing up this screenplay. So <laughs> he was in a position to know how we could figure out the finance to make this movie independently at a low budget and, we yeah he like without me even actually having to really stress or think about it he pulled together two and a half million dollars for us and uh and off we went but it was it was slow and i i my only regret is that you know actually in order to make the movie i quit advertising and had to get broke that's what happened um mm. i just wish i'd done that three or four years earlier if you know what i mean it's uh, a great motivator yeah 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 being broke makes you work and the hole in the ground did not make me rich by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but um, it, it it definitely was it definitely drew the focus towards actually realizing the movie and, and getting something made. Well, the calling card that you create, you've done a feature film uh, in the two and a half million dollar range. You've gone beyond just doing commercials and short films, and it's a totally different product that you are able to present to agents and producers and the like. Yeah. Um, you talk about your writing process. Everybody works in a different way. Uh, how do you work? Do you do you outline first for yourself? Do you structure? Do you sit down on page one? Uh, my almost always when I'm writing on spec, I just start on page one and go straight through to a hundred or whatever it ends up. Oh, I'd, lo I'd, lo I'd love to be able to do that. I'm such a worrier that uh, I, I I like I don't want to outline. I I've, I don't think I've ever truly properly finished an outline that I'm happy with I reach a point and then I'm like I'm going to figure the rest of this out as I go I do love my cards so I will uh, always, I will always find a blank wall and start to uh, shuffle ideas around uh, being a little bit of a structure nut I think everything I've worked on has been a little, uh, has been different what what the, the one consistent thing is I try to not talk about what I'm writing 
for as long as possible because the more I keep it in my head the more it kind of grows wings and starts to bubble and boil like I'll obviously the people I work with I'll tell them the headline it's like hey I've got this idea but I'll 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 kind of like yeah I'll kind of trap it in my head as long as I can and that's probably that's one of the things that Stephen King recommends is that you don't share what you're doing with anybody until you're done with at least the first pass yeah there, there's some value to that and like it's it's kind of an instinctive thing it's it's almost like it's like your own dirty little secret like you've got to sit <laughs> with it, you know what I mean you've, you've got to sit with it and and let it spoil itself or show itself and that has been a very valuable thing and then weirdly once I cross that line then I don't stop talking about it to any, anyone that will listen uh, <laughs> and I will I will acid test so like I feel like I do more work in the conversations that I have than actually the things I write down. I I am I am a firm believer that writing a screenplay is actually quite easy uh, as a process, but knowing what to write down is thunderously difficult. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's it's it chop it chops and changes, and then ultimately, it usually comes down to me probably going into my bedroom with my with my laptop on my knees, um, not into the, the fancy writing office with the view or whatever you know places I could go to write I usually just wake up rub the sleep out of my eyes pick up my laptop and just start writing that's kind of how it goes do you have a facility for it so once you start your fingers start working they just go until you stop yeah and and I it, it's it's exhausting but I tend to not even take weekends off once I actually properly get into it and um, because even the weekend off I lose my focus and then I lose a day on Monday trying to come back into it and look I say all this stuff like I've written a million things I've probably written less than 10 screenplays in my life but you know every time you cross the line you learn a little bit more but yeah I tend to once I start I tend to struggle to finish and it's weird because promoting Evil Dead Rise the moment I'm actually in the middle of a screenplay that I had to put down and I'm terrified about picking it back up again because I feel like I'm starting all over again even though I'm like 50 pages in oh yeah you know, momentum, you know, I, what I always do every time I'm writing every day, I start reading it again from page one, no matter how far I am into the script. If I'm 80 pages in start at page one and then the momentum can kick in a little more easily. Yeah. So it's, it's really valuable. I actually, unfortunately carry that through to my writing. Whereas I would say three out of five days, I'll actually start rewriting on page one, even though I know I should be on page 70 yes. doing what I should do. But I just I'll just start to like work my way back in or find that, you know, find the warm up of a scene I already am happy with, but that I can still jockey a few words in different ways. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a tough process. It really is a tough process, but it's it's what we do. So I can't escape it. I think it's a very valuable way to do it because you are refining every step of the way. So your first draft is more than really a first draft. It's a fifth draft or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You have definitely curated it quite a bit before you put it out there. And, and the reality is probably for the first 85 pages. And then typically you've spit out the last 15 in like two days yeah. uh, and, and have not touched them at all. But you've set it up hopefully in the right way that the energy of uh, and the spirit of it is there. What is your favorite uh, part of the process of filmmaking? Is it conceiving of an idea? Is it writing the script? Is it the actual casting and pre-production and hiring the crew and designing and all of that? Um, is it shooting? Is it post-production? 
I think it's post-production for me. And I like I do adore all of the steps. The battle I have between writing and directing is when I'm writing, I get irritated and go, oh my God, I can't wait to be on set and engage with people. And, <laughs> and then I'm on set, the people are amazing, but I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait till I just have to go get to go into a room and not answer any questions. So I often think that that's the main job of a director is just to answer questions all day long. Um, and, but when I get in, the, I think my strongest uh, innate ability is the edit. Although I've literally couldn't even, you know, push one button on an avid and know what it does. I'm completely uh, uh, incapable in that space. But you I and do, me both. Yeah, yeah. But I, but I do trust my mind um, in that way, and. It's kind of like um, I always feel the edit is the closest to having a like a real job where you can actually most days have a day and go home and go, oh, I did I did my job today. And nothing's messed up. Like I remember when I used to work in supermarkets when I was younger, making money to go to film school. And I loved it because you tidy up at the end of the day and you'd go home and you'd feel free. You didn't feel any responsibility when you're writing or shooting a movie. It's a dumpster fire of an experience but in post you actually get that little sense of like a fair day's work and a job well done yeah. which I quite enjoy the feeling of actually being able to go home and sit down and watch a movie and not feel guilty or confused um and so I love it for from that point of view but why you get that experience is because you're kind of making it better every day you know um and it is a cliche but it is so true that it's the the ultimate kind of rewrite yeah, originally when I first started, I hated the edit because it was so infinite. The possibilities were overwhelming me of how you could shape and refine, but it didn't take long at all to realize this is so much fun. This is where you you sculpt, you trim off all the the parts that aren't Michelangelo's, David. Yeah. You know, yeah. And there's and, a lot of power. There's a lot of power in those keystrokes in terms of what you can do. Um, and yeah, I I I, I just love. I love fixing the problems I created for myself while I was shooting the movie. And you have civilized hours to do it. Yeah. Although when we were cutting Evil Dead Rise, it was myself, my editor, we we really got pulled deep in like what we wanted to do. And we had a, a, quite a number of weeks where we worked seven days on it. We yeah. were just at it all the time. The clock, the, you know, the studio clock is ticking. You've got a deadline. You just don't want to stop. Yeah, it's a very different world. We'll, we'll we'll get into that, but tell me about the experience of having your first feature film. Which, by the way, you talk about it uh, having the low budget, and I'm surprised at the cost of it because it's still quite ambitious. And some of the digital effects are very organic and beautifully done. The whole itself is like, whoa, um, yeah. very impressive. But again, seeing your film with an audience, but at one of the most revered film festivals in the world in 2019. So we're only four years past that. So I'd love to hear what that experience was for you. It was, it was, you know, I'm, I'm a film nerd. Um, it was a dream come true. Like I remember we actually found out crazy early that we were in Sundance because Sundance is like late January. And I knew by like early August the year before. They'd seen the movie and they were like, yes, we, we want to show this film. Um, it was it was nerve wracking. We were like the Egyptian theater on the first Friday at midnight. So it was like it was kind of a hell of a slot to have. And I suffer 
I've only been at high altitude twice in my life. And on both occasions, I've just like vomited and been like really ill. Oh, Jesus. So, so I, I got I got into Park City intentionally with this little worry of having had altitude sickness before. I got in about three days beforehand. And then I spent like two and a half of those days like in bed. Red. Oh. Red. Ended up having to get like oxygen to actually rouse me and like bring me around. Oh, my God. So I was still sh- I was shaky as hell going into that screening you know um and then i I learned after the fact but now i would know when you show a midnight movie at a festival you're going to get 10 or 15 minutes in you're going to get some walkouts just because people are tired and i i had no concept of this at all so about 15 minutes in there was this little five minute trend of people some people going to the bathroom because they'd had a few beers which was fine (laughs) But then when you see people, especially in Park City, wrapping up their big coat under their arms and you're like, oh, that's so <laughs> leaving. they're so leaving right now. Um, and then everything settled down. And, and yeah, we had like my and again, I had some friends and some family and people that had worked on the movie and the cast were there. Um, and we just had a great time getting to put it on with with that type of audience. Um, and it was it was quite overwhelming. I remember we did the Q&A and it, it took me about 30 minutes to be able to get off the stage because people just wanted to come up and talk and ask questions. And it was my first bit bit of exposure to um, not being the fan of something, but, but the fans being there wanting to have a conversation with uh, about, about what you, what you do. And probably not my, not my biggest regret, but the biggest downside to the experience was the fact that we, the movie had been pre-sold with a 24. So rather than having the Sundance experience of looking for a home for the movie and like, you know, there being a deal going on in the background, we were already there and therefore I spent the entire time just doing press like wall to wall press all the time. Um, I didn't get to go to like the Robert Redford lunch or the Midnighters dinner. Oh, just doing press the entire oh. time. So I really would like to make a movie and go back to Sundance again and, and just enjoy it. And weirdly I made sure that wasn't the case with evil dead rise. when we had their world premiere at South by Southwest. Again, I went there for a week, had no altitude sickness, thankfully, <laughs> but, but actually got to just hang out. I got to watch movies. Like I went, I went to the cinema and watched other filmmakers work um, and, and hung out and just met interesting people and had interesting conversations. So that was a real treat. The festivals are so important for filmmakers to get together as well, because directors don't work together. Everything right. is independent of one another and to be, especially international ones. You're from Ireland. I'm from LA. Um, going to festivals in in South Korea, in Japan, in you know all all around the world, it's thrilling to be exposed to the facets of the genre. No, it is amazing, and I've 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 actually I have made as I'm sure you have multiple times genuine friends on the road that you know outside of the festival circuit, we, like we we stay in touch. Um, Absolutely, yeah. you know, which is which is which is really really nice, um, and it's a real joy to see to go to a festival and then see their work. And yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting way of putting it. It's like, yeah, directors don't work together, but we all, we all get to suffer together on the road. Yes, <laughs> it's true. Well, how, what was your pitch for Evil Dead Rise? It was, my, 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 it was pieces along the way until there was a point, then there was a full pitch, but it was six months of me kind of, teasing out once I found something in relation to what I wanted to do, just sharing that and the guys going, yeah, we like that. Keep going. So 
initially my first meeting with Sam Raimi, we talked about everything but Evil Dead until I raised it. And then I wanted to, I wanted to talk about it because I was a fan. It was the last five minutes of this like two hour lunch that we had. And he was, he'd seen the hole in the ground, which is. So it was a general meeting. Yeah, it was a general meeting. Yeah, it was a general meeting. Exactly. Um, And he was there with two of his execs and, I said we talked about everything but Evil Dead and I was going fuck I like I really you know I'm a big admirer of Sam's work and I'm a huge Evil Dead fan but I don't know when to bring this up and I think just as I was kind of watching the clock tick down I was like so do you have any plans for Evil Dead he's like no but we're we're trying to figure it out we really want to do something and I was like oh that's cool because I'm a massive fan he's like would you be interested and I was like I would but I also have to jump on a plane back to Dublin right now so we're kind of going to need to talk about this again and that's what we did. We just had a series of conversations. I think by the time I'd got, he said, please do think about it. We'd love to hear, you know, as, as the phrase goes, we'd love to hear your take. And I started to think about it on the, on the flight back to Dublin and quite quickly circled the idea of moving the action out of the out of the cabin into the city and 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 putting a family in, in peril in, in like in the in the danger zone in the in the firing line of the deadites. And then probably if three weeks later, I shared that notion and they were like, oh, we really like that because we want something fresh. Do more, come back and tell us more. So I did that on two or three occasions. And then it was in the July of 2019 that I, I jumped on a Zoom call with um, with Sam and Rob and Bruce and kind of pitched them beginning to end of the whole story. And then they were like, excellent. You know, we'll contact your agents with a deal. And then, you know, things get papered and then you actually kind of start on the road. But it was actually incredibly smooth as a process. I got to think, I got to talk, and then I got to present, and they really liked where I was coming from with it. Um, they it was a it was a good timing for everybody because I, you know, I love Evil Dead, but I wasn't interested in just serving the franchise in a very obvious way. And they didn't want to do what they'd done before. So we were all looking for the same thing at the same time. Well, one of the great things about Evil Dead Rise is that it's not really, it's not a reboot and it's not really a sequel. It's a story that takes place in the world of the Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah. It overlaps with your storyline. Yeah, that's the way I looked at it. I was like, it's, if it was a Sunday afternoon matinee, it's like the continuing adventures of this world, you know? And that was that was quite intentional. Um, the, the thing I think that's different and the thing that I really wanted to do was in the previous movies, it's about people, even in an army of darkness, in this case, one person, but somebody or people go to or end up in an unusual place, you know? And when you go to an unusual place, expect the unexpected, right? Like that's, that's how it works. With this, we have a family just having a Friday night in LA doing their thing. Like, let's get pizza, let's hang out, you're messing, I'm doing this, do your chores, just regular life. But then I bring the evil to them which I think is probably tonally the biggest different difference with this movie and, and the previous ones is that the evil, you know, lands on your doorstep rather than you walking up the wrong steps to a weird Right, place. the evil comes home. Yeah. yeah, the evil comes home. Yeah, And it's funny, it may seem obvious or simple, but that was actually what gave me the freedom to tell the story in a different way. So rather than someone walking into a room and being like, oh my God, there's a knife that I don't recognize. I need to pick it up and use it as a weapon. If there's a knife in this movie, it's the knife that they've used to cut their vegetables for the last 10 years. There's a familiar right. with everything. Interesting, yeah. Um, it's interesting too, because it's tonally, couldn't be less like the hole in the ground, which yeah. is quiet and creeps up on you and is suspenseful in that regard. 
Evil Dead Rise is nothing if it's not aggressive. Yeah. I think aggressive is the perfect word to describe the movie. And all these physical effects, even when I saw the first Evil Dead and particularly the second one, and Army of Darkness for that matter, which uh, Bruce Campbell and Rob Tabbert were on a couple of weeks ago to celebrate the 40th anniversary. Yeah, I listened to that. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, They were great. But the complications of all the physical effects, my God, this had to have been as your first studio picture, just overwhelming. Tell me how yeah. you dealt with that. Yeah, it was. It was the thing that I learned really early on was based on the way I, the ideas that I had in the screenplay and how I wanted to shoot them. And again, I'm sure this is an experience you've had on many occasions is there's no for any given gag, there's no singular fix. So it's like, oh, you want to stab someone through the face? Cool. We'll build this rig. And I'm like, yeah, and then I want to shoot it from here. And they're like, okay, well, then we need to build another rig. And then I need this top shot. Well, then we need another rig. And I realized that that the level of ambition for the movie, despite the fact that it was very contained, was actually enormous in terms of what we had to uh, achieve. And I'm very open about the process and where I'm at. I, I would never pretend to the seasoned and experienced effects people and you know, the overall team on the movie that I had done the things that I wanted to do before. So I'd just be like, I've never done this. You're going to need to hold my hand. Like, I know what I want. And, I, you know, movie storyboarded. Here's the tonal references. We've talked about it in relation to the script. But I don't understand what it is you're talking about right now. And that was, there was a big, there was a big learning curve for me in understanding the technique and technology that would allow me to achieve the ideas. But I felt it was best to be, open about the fact that I didn't have a clue about plenty of stuff I knew about. And I, you know, had worked before and had that experience, but there was definitely in practical effects world, there was things that, you know, I had to learn. And then in learning it, could figure out nimble ways of um, reutilizing the, right. the, the techniques uh, and, and, and then augmenting the techniques to actually never make it easier, but to actually push the ambition a little bit further. Yeah, what's great about the state of the art right now is that even with the best of the physical effects, makeup effects and all of that, digital effects are great enhancements and they can smooth out all those problems that that you can't solve, you know, make an eye blink realistically in a way that it it can't uh, when you're using a puppet. Yeah, but it's like from... The, my line is always I don't I don't use CGI to um, define anything. I use it to refine. Um, actually, my 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 VFX supervisor flew in from New Zealand. He lives in New Zealand. He flew in from New Zealand yesterday to come to the Beyond Fest screening in Santa Monica because he and he'd held back on seeing the movie. And he was saying to me he'd read a review of the movie recently that hit on that very note where it's like this film is super practical. And obviously uses CGI to like basically paper over those cracks. And he yeah. was like, couldn't be happier with that. That was our approach. Um, and no one can notice the joins. But yeah, like this movie is is 90% practical. Um, and we th- there was nothing, even though we knew in at times the result would be a CGI fix, we never just went there. We still actually hurt ourselves trying to figure out a way to do it practically or to do as much a percentage of any particular shot practically. And then that practical spirit carried right through into sound design. Um, Like even when the pages of the book are being turned, 
my sound designer, uh, Peter Albertson, would went out and like recorded to picture somebody turning the pages of like a 200 year old book. Right. Uh, um, so this film is yet yeah, this film was as kind of analog as we could make it. And it gives it a certain grungy vibe um, in its atmosphere, which I'm I'm really proud of. Well, again, stylistically, it's so far from the things you'd done before. Um, And it had to be a revelation that, oh, uh, something that you've written, a scene that you've written that you think you can shoot in a day is going to take you a week. Oh, man. Oh, my God. You're like, talk about hitting the nail on the head with the process. There were days on this movie where we shot like two eighths of a page, you know, And, and, and you can feel you can feel the dragon breath, you know what I mean? On, on the back of your neck. And then there was days where we'd shoot more. Like the, the structure of this movie um, is that there's a scary cold open and then we spend 15, 20 minutes getting to know the characters and then everything goes insane. Um, and those 15 or 20 minutes of the movie we shot in one week of our 12 week schedule. So I actually, sh- I shot about a fifth of the movie in, yeah, like at one, one twelfth of the time. <laughs> work, it out, work it out mathematicians and then the slog started you know um it was kind of crazy it was like it was almost like shooting tv at the start shot like yeah 20 pages in a week and then started shooting half a page a day um at times because then i had another 58 days to shoot about 60 pages 65 pages so it, when it averaged out it was about a page a day and you're creeping along it's hard to shoot a scene and feel like you're shooting a scene you're shooting yeah pieces of the puzzle that will eventually become a scene yeah totally i like i also worked with a i also worked with a second unit uh director a guy called charlie haskell who's amazing and but that was what a learning curve that was it was also having to communicate those ideas and to go in and shoot 85 percent of a scene and then talk to someone and bring them back to the storyboards and explain some of the filler that you needed and some of the detail that you needed to actually get. That was, that was a real learning experience, being able to let go and trust somebody else to go and do that for you. Yeah. That's really tough because a lot of people don't know what a second unit director is. That's scenes that are mostly effects or stunts that don't involve the main cast Exactly. and to be able to turn it over to someone that was uh, on my first movie. We had a lot of second unit stuff as well. And it's like, wait, wait, he's going to do this. You're constantly running from your set to theirs. Yeah, non, to- nonstop, nonstop. And by the end of this movie, we were running a 24 hour set. So the main unit would come in, we'd work. I'd then have a conversation with the second unit, get a few hours sleep, jump online, log in to observe what they were doing, send a few notes, etc. And And the weirdest thing of all is it's some of the funnest stuff that you write that you have to give to the second unit because it's so labor intensive. The main unit is too big to only get three setups in a day, if you know what I mean. But well, the second and, unit is there to do that. And, and a lot of the practical effects stuff isn't fun. <laughs> it's so time it's laborious. It's laborious, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you went to film school. Do you think it prepared you for what um, becoming a filmmaker was? N- not in the slightest, being really honest. I did not. I, I went to film school with an ambition, I kind of wanted to go to, it was almost like I wanted to head into like a camp. I wanted to like, I wanted to sleep on metal bunks, you know, and then wake <laughs> up in the morning and get, get whipped by celluloid that like, I just wanted to learn how all this worked 
but that's just not really how film school works or the film school that I went to. There's some really good people there and some good lecturers, but I felt like I was always battling to get my hands on a camera. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, mm -hmm. I felt like I could do more on my own than the semester schedule would allow me to do. Mm -hmm. And what was weird is it, it pushed me down this avenue where I just started shooting observational comedy because it was the quickest way to get stuff made. Just, I've got an idea, let's go do it rather than all of the red tape. So I started out, I did. I, I made one semi-horror short in film school, but everything else I shot was observational comedy with, mm -hmm. with, with little to no, obviously timing and tempo, but little to no visual style or film craft from that point of view. Um, it was just like, point the camera over there and say something funny. There's a sight gag, go grab it. That was, and that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, and I don't, you know, being a lover of horror when I was younger, I'm not exactly sure when I pivoted back and was like, no, wait a minute. This is what I really want to do. It's in your blood. Celluloid. Yeah, no escape. <laughs> Celluloid and caro syrup is in your blood. Yeah. <laughs> But um, let's go back to the studio experience and the difference between putting together a, an independent movie, theatrical movie, yeah. and not only a studio film and all of that, what that requires, but it being part of a well-known franchise. Yeah. So were there marching orders going in from the Sam Raimi camp um, that were maybe in opposition to what the studio wanted? Not, not enormously. Like, I, I don't think I'm ever going to get this lucky again. And, and it's a question, Mick, that people have, um, have brought up before about how did you feel and how was the experience? Like even slight segue, but even people talking about like the ratings board, you know, like, and did you have this big battle? And it was like, no, we, we just, we got our O rating. Like, like, so obviously the producers had opinions and they're, you know, they are the, you know, the founders of this franchise. But they were on board early and um, they rarely, if ever, second guessed what I was trying to do, you know, once or twice, which is normal. But but typically they they were on board and um, the, the pressures were more, as always, around the money and trying to find ways, despite the fact that I had a bigger budget, the script, the script's ambition exceeded the budget. So trying to be nimble and figure stuff out and trying to hold on to things that you're being asked to cut. That was probably the hardest task of all. And I managed to hold on to almost everything. And then the studio were, were kind of similar. They they bought in and they were like, we get what this is. And not every studio did. You know, I, you know, there were certain studios that were like, hey, turn the mom into a babysitter. And I'm like, and just destroy the metaphor of the movie. You know, like but, but, but New Line, you know, I think for them, what they were excited by, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but the sense I got, and I have kind of hinted at this or had discussions with them about it, was it was a little bit of a return to their origins of like kind of harder core horror than they'd maybe done for a few years. Like I adore The Conjuring Universe. Those movies are fantastic and super successful, but they have a wholesome value to them. Um, whereas Evil Dead Rise was maybe a little bit returning to, to roots, nothing like A Nightmare on Elm Street at all, but bringing you back to that kind of like, hot spectacle if you know what I mean just like a different yeah. thing so I think they were kind of charmed by that idea and, and equally supportive of me just getting it done so were there any specific walking orders on doing an evil dead movie that anyone whether it's a studio or whether yeah. it was renaissance or ghost house wanted to make sure that you included I think Sam just said to me really early on he's like please use the book and make sure the deadites are really scary 
Um, <laughs> Those are easy walking orders. In a, in a weird way, it was. I was like, of course, Sam. Um, and then along the way, there was more there was more discussions of things we wouldn't do. Like we did decide that the Oldsmobile Delta wasn't right for the tone of this movie. You know, <laughs> it, it does have many Easter eggs, but at the same time, it was like the, the Delta was personal to Sam and this family were never going to be driving that car from that era, even though I gave them something that has an adjacent quality in terms of its tone, the car that's in the movie. But there was, there was more though those, those kind of discussions. Um, but yeah, it was it genuinely was as simple as that. It was, use the book and make sure the deadites are scary. And I'm like, I'm way ahead of you, Sam. Like, we're, like the deadites are, the, you know, the best thing. And I, you know, a, about this. And I couldn't make this movie without the book. Um, and from there, it was just the, the process of people watching the rushes and kind of giving their opinion. I, I did, I did, I remember, and I held on pretty tight. I did have that moment that I think every director has where I got the, it's looking very dark and not tonally, but like, you know, put more light on it. Right. And I was like, we're at the darkest point in the movie where there is no light. So there was, you know, you have those moments and you get, you get suggestions and feedback. And as a filmmaker, it's just about how you manage those and communicate what it is that you're doing. Right. Right. So what was probably the most complicated scene for, for you? Where to begin? Like the, <laughs> The monstrous conclusion to the movie was without doubt the hardest thing to do. Um, there was no, in, in an ultimate way, there was no one size fits all solution to that. Um, and we had to use every possible filmmaking trick from just like, yeah, like I still, I still have PTSD from trying to put that monster on screen. So we used everything from like old school puppetry right the way through to motion control um and oh and god it, motion control is the most hideous tool ever to work with it was the first time in if i'd used it before on a couple of commercials and that's fine because they're like their money drains anyway but on this trying to use motion control but also being under time pressure those two things they just don't even exist in the same universe no. um, and we, we ended up having to use it touch more than planned because with eight days of filming left, we were in New Zealand and we'd had zero COVID for six months. It was a COVID-free world completely. Right. And then COVID got into New Zealand and shut us down for two months. So when we came back, the level of interactivity required, we weren't able to do. So we had to use motion control even more than we planned. Right. And whenever we used motion control, I think we had five to six passes to do. Uh. So yeah, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it, it makes working on a low loader seem fun. Um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was hard going. Um, but I said within that sequence, every possible filmmaking tool that we, 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 we could use, we kind of had to use and we pulled every trick possible that, that, and, the, and then the blood elevator in the movie was not easy because it was, it was really expensive. It was really time consuming and it was quite hard to figure out how to film it. So what's next? Oh, wow. Um, Again, I'm sure, Mick, that you get this and you've been in that boat where you've got some things on the boil. Um, oh, yeah, I'm there right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah like you, you ne there's never one particular thing. I think what's next will be amongst the three or four things that I'm working on. It will be the one that probably feels like the coolest drink of water in comparison to what I've just made. <laughs> um, I totally understand what you mean. Yeah, like I think... like. 
whether people love or hate this movie, however it's received, I always say people won't be bored and you cannot knock its intensity. I know it's super intense. <laughs> so I will that make it for sure. Yeah. I, I, I will make can attend to that, attest yeah. to that. Yes. Yeah. Even I feel it when I watch it. I'm like, the, like, I'm like, this is, yeah, it's got intensity. I think I've, I've got another project with New Line that I'm really excited by. And that's the one that I'm in the middle of writing at the moment and had to put down while I went, went and promoted this movie. And why I'm quite excited about that movie, it's called Thaw. And I think it was announced and so people know some stuff about it. Um, is that it, it, it hits into the themes that I love, which is, you know, families in turmoil, family in peril. I'm, I'm being, being a child of, you know, an, an Amblin kid, I'm consistently drawn to that kind of space. And then obviously- That's I, where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you get it, man. And so I'm, I'm always drawn back to that. And, but what I also like about it is it's, it's a movie that's set on the water and it's got mm. a very different temperature to Evil Dead Rise. And the weird thing is, I'll now have to get over the hump of people that loved Evil Dead Rise coming out and going, like people went for the hole in the ground going, oh my God, how this guy that made this quiet psychological whisper at the back of your neck, how's he going to make this hot mess? And then you do. And then the next movie won't be a hot mess. It'll be something different again. Then you'll discover the uh, issues of shooting on the water. Oh, you know what? <laughs> Even though there's a little bit of water in Evil Dead Rise and already I'm just like managing the highlights on the water it will ruin my brain because I hate hot spots and shots. Um, but yeah, it's that, that's something I'm excited by. I've got it. I've got an old school project that I put down before I made Evil Dead called Box of Bones. That's like a, you know, a, a kind of proper ghost story, which I'm which I'm quite mm. excited by. And then I'm also working on a a ghost hunter story, like a paranormal psychologist proper, you know, hunting things down, but a really idiosyncratic, different character that I kind of haven't seen in that world before. Oh, that, that sounds great. That I'm quite, I'm quite drawn to her and it's based on a true story and it's Irish as well. And the attraction to that is the idea of telling a really Irish story, but with studio money on an international canvas in a horror context has basically never happened before. You that's know? thrilling. Yeah, that's never happened. There's the low budget and there's all that, but I don't think there's been a $25 million Irish horror movie. Um, so that's very attractive to me as well. That's fantastic. Well, I so appreciate you coming on and catching us up with everything and I wish you all the best of luck on Evil Dead Rise and everything to follow. So good to see you, Lee. Uh, thank you so much. And it's, it, it, was, it, it was the second time we've got to hang out and it was, it was a treat. Last time we, we got to watch Critters 2 and went for a nice vegan dinner, I remember. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, hopefully I'll see you in the flesh again soon. But thanks for having me on and, and for your questions, dude. Uh, it's so much fun. Good luck. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.